Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. Yeah, so welcome. Thank you for coming to listen to my talk, uh, Address the Harm Self-Directed Education for Decolonization. So um, as I said, please stay on mute. I think I've said it so you can't unmute yourself. Um, and this is absolutely a topic that requires discussion, but, um, but maybe not, um, but not in, the, in this, this space. I don't have the energy for that today. But I absolutely encourage you to please go, ahead, go away and discuss the things that, are, that come up here. Um, I'm aware that all of you are in different contexts. You are in different geographical locations. I know that some people are actually joining from the Caribbean, uh, which is my background. And um, I'm going to be speaking about decolonization through that lens, but I do think that a lot of what I talk about is general. And um, I think it, it, I will be bringing up things that um, are applicable across the board. So... Just to introduce myself, my name is Adele Jarrett Carr. I am a writer and a home educator. Specifically, I unschool uh, my six, my three children, six, nine, and four. And uh, we live in Cornwall in the UK. And um, I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago. I moved here 15 years ago. Uh, Trinidad and Tobago is an ex-British colony. So um, some of what Talk, talk about it would be good for you to kind of think about how that sort of applies to whatever your positionality is. So when I moved to England from Trinidad and Tobago 15 years ago, it was for university, which um, is itself a massive privilege. And one of the ways I coped with culture shock at the time was to keep telling myself, it's okay, I have a British education. I was educated in the British system. And in fact, the A-levels that I sat were, um, were marked over here in, um, in England at, by the Cambridge exam board. That's no longer the case. Um, the Caribbean now has its own exam board, which um, is remarkably still like A-levels. But a culture shock was a sanitized way of understanding the colonial disregard that I was experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis, having my accent constantly corrected and um, having the knowledge and experience that I brought to situations frequently made light of. But that didn't only come from outside of myself. A lot of that was internalized. And I remember vividly sitting in a seminar room with all the sensations of feeling embarrassed because of the gaps in my knowledge as compared to the British students. And that went on for me. Even though I more than caught up and kept up, and even though I had learned more about their colonial history and their slavery legacy, and even though I had read more Caribbean and African authors, I still felt this profound need to measure up, this profound um, lack of something. And what I didn't realize at the time, but I have learned since, was that personal feeling, um, that personal coping mechanism is actually historically entrenched in the way that secondary school education, and actually I'd say all education, was developed in my country as a British colony. So I'm just gonna let somebody else in. Hmm. 
this need to measure up was entrenched in the way that education was developed in, um, in my country as a, as a British colony. And the, the first secondary schools were established to educate young people of a certain social class. And um, considering the geographical context, that also reads a certain race. And um, it, they were destined to finish their education in universities in England, which meant that there was a lot of anxiety about Britishness in the forming of secondary education. And after slavery was abolished, the focus of education was broadened to the propagation of religion and um, to, uh, to assimilating the formerly African enslaved Africans and then the indentured laborers from China and India. Education was about developing civilized subjects of the British crown, getting people to fit into a political, economic and to an extent social system that reflected the colonial power. But what does this mean for education in the UK and what does it mean post-independence? Our story is your story. You know this because of the Windrush generation. The ongoing anxiety about British borders is about protecting wealth that has been concentrated by a colonization. And there is a sense in which the UK is distanced from these conversations around decolonization because it all happened somewhere else. And I think we need to, we need to be careful to find ways to bring that in to recognize that although the harm was geographically not here, it is connected to here. This country is still benefiting from it today. And 60 years is realistically no time at all for colonial thinking to change when there's been no real effort to redistribute wealth or power or even just look at the established thinking that made colonization possible. When we talk about decolonizing education, we run the risk of whitewashing it as an intellectual exercise, a trendy buzzword, something that's diversifying a curriculum or even significantly adding to it can achieve. And that makes us feel good. It can feel pretty comfortable, which is a sign that it's not really changing anything. We need to resist that process of whitewashing decolonization. And the way to do that is to acknowledge that an education system that was developed under colonialism and that upheld colonialism will continue to commit that violence today. There's no real reason to believe it doesn't if the pedagogy hasn't been radically rethought since. And if we look at our wider culture and wonder why there is systemic harm, it only makes sense that we Look at the system that is educating people to perpetuate it. Because colonialism is about a system that we all exist in and to varying extents we all benefit from, um, it's also a system that affects everyone. And again, to varying extents and in varying ways harms everyone. But this isn't about specific people. This is about all of us, and it's about something that we all have to play a part in dismantling. So how is coercive education, conventional education, colonial? And what is the connection? To start with, it's about assimilation. And with that comes erasure. 
Colonization works to bring us all into line. It insists that there's one knowledge stream, one way of doing things, one value system for understanding success. It enforces this agenda to the detriment of all ancestral knowledge, all other ways of knowing and doing, and it leaves us with a narrow vision of what life is and can be. Education is normative, or rather, it's often normative. Historically, this has meant denying people at least some of their religious and cultural practices and insisting that all education is in the English language. And when I was considering that, I realized that actually that's still, that's still very much happening today. That is the way that it's done. And one small example is reviling the use of other dialects of English, other Englishes, and um, preferring or rather in favor of the Queen's English or proper English. You know, snobbery over language is almost always rooted in racism and classism or both. And we do it often without realizing it because we, it's been normalized for us. We see this assimilation, this uniformity, this erasure in standardized testing. Under normal circumstances, GCSEs and A-levels primarily test your ability to test well your income and your white privilege. This has become more obvious under the pandemic where young people attending schools in less affluent areas have been marked down and independent schools have seen better grades. We see clearly how fragile and arbitrary this way of assessing students' knowledge is. And beyond that, valuing certain certifications and dismissing knowledge gained through lived experience, lived experience is another way of concentrating power. So we really need to ask with with exams, what, what we're really testing for, what we're really perpetuating, what we're creating with that. And I know that we're all in different, we're all in different places. Um, this is where I slightly wish I hadn't turned the comments off because I would love to know, like, you know, whether your parents or um, who's, who's um, home educating or an educator in a mainstream setting or an alternative setting. But it'd be great to think about how these things fit in those different, those different settings. In response to the fresh wave of Black Lives Matter protests, we've seen fresh calls for African history, including slavery, colonialism, and going well beyond that to be included in the school curriculum. And we've seen lots of other ways that people have wanted to diversify the curriculum. And, um, and it's, it has highlighted something that is really important, something that is another colonial hallmark of the school curriculum, um, which is Eurocentricity. And um, this doesn't just exist in European countries, this exists wherever the system has, uh, the system of education hasn't been radically changed. There's always a referencing of knowledge which is, which prefers the, the conqueror. So it's not just in literature, um, or rather I'd say we see this space in the white male um, canon which um, is not just literature, it's music, history, science. In my, one of my fields, which is farming, uh, this comes up a lot. So much of the knowledge that we draw on on a daily basis was actually adopted from indigenous, black, 
and um, other members of the global majority and repackaged for profit by white men. So we're using lots of practices. Well, we personally try not to, but generally we're using lots of practices that um, have a history that we're not acknowledging. And there's a real disconnect in that. And it's happening across the board in lots of different areas. It's, um, it's connected with us often defining educated as posh and white. And, um, and actually, um, it's found that often if somebody, if you do think of somebody as educated, you do often start to think of them as being more white. So all of that is connected. So to, we need to start normalizing asking hard questions about whose work we're celebrating, who we're studying, what books we're keeping. Do our heroes, thought leaders, and mentors need to be reconsidered? Do we need to be ready to recognize oppressive patterns in the work of people we respect? You know, this is hard, no matter who you are and what background you come from, because we're often attached to things that were normalized for us in childhood. And it can be really hard to look at them and say that they were involved in the harm that was, that was done and that maybe we don't need them anymore. But just as I said earlier that the British education system brought into Trinidad and Tobago didn't reflect the realities of the students of its time, or I think I said that, if I didn't, I meant to say it, is that that was a problem. Um, it was a classical education and it wasn't reflecting the fact that it was an agricultural society. Um, but just as that has happened, cohesive education today isn't reflecting often isn't reflecting the realities of the children and young people that we're educating. We have such a collective terror of technology that it's preventing many of us from leaning into it with them. And in the face of climate disaster and rising automation, a lot of the discussions we're having about how educating young people, about educating young people so they can find jobs are fast becoming outdated. Education now needs to focus on developing emotional intelligence, empathy, collaboration, and creativity, things that computers can't replace and that may get us through the impending crisis. Putting one person against another and demanding assimilation isn't conducive to developing those things. That's not saying people can't still leave compulsory education having developed them, but that we're making it unnecessarily hard which means we're not moving fast enough. And this will continue to have colonial ramifications, particularly as we see increased climate migration. All of this is being held together by a punitive justice system that is highly racist, colorist, and classist. Black students are more likely to be characterized in terms of their behavior and punished and suspended. And whatever ethnic or social background you fall into, Punitive practices, either in school or in the home, teach us to equate justice with punishment. So we're not finding other ways to solve conflicts and we're not finding ways to meet everybody's needs which would, which would reduce conflict. But bear in mind that children from a BAME background, I don't like that term, but I'm using it as it's what's used in the reporting, are disproportionately more likely to make their way 
into the UK youth justice system. And that whatever age, whenever a black person says they've been racially profiled by the police, there is always someone who's going to pop up and their first instinct is to say, there must be more to the story, which is a form of victim blaming, rather than first extending empathy and concern. A coercive education is the hotbed for this. Racial bias against students is the person-to-person reflection of a global process where the global north takes a paternalistic view of the global majority, prioritizing its own interests and justifying that, that with assumptions about what everybody else needs. So what we're essentially seeing is a pedagogy that normalizes damage. Colonial thinking perpetuates ideas about children that they must be shaped, which is disempowering. And because we're all disempowered, we're more likely to accept the world the way it is. Just taking a quick look because, okay, right, I think everybody's here now. And um, whoever's not, I'm sorry, it's almost, <laughs> it's 20 past. <laughs> right. Self-directed education has the opportunity to disrupt these processes. And it does this by throwing out the insistence on uniformity and putting self-determination in the hands of children and young people. That's not the whole story. We'll get to the rest in a minute, but it is one of the ways. Because when we allow them to set the agenda, we resist false divisions between types of learning and between ways of learning or knowing. When we look at indigenous and traditional practices of education, we can see that Colonizing education has led to a stringent, um, a stringent division between subjective experience and objective knowledge, spirituality versus intellectualism, and it defines success in narrow prescribed terms rather than making success about the whole person. So by contrast, self-directed education gives the opportunity to bring all these things together and to work together, to, to let learning work together as an act of wholeness and of healing. All of that said, there is no social just, where there is no social justice awareness, self-directed learning on its own won't decolonize anything. You'll still be drawing on the dominant culture, or your child will still be drawing on the dominant culture, and that dominant culture is white supremacist, Eurocentric, or otherwise colonial in the ways that I've already talked about. Zakia Ismail explains this really clearly in an article that you can Google and find online called Unschooling as Decolonization. And I love how she puts this, so I'm quoting her. She writes, as much as unschooling can be decolonizing, it can also be oppressive. Unschooling without a conscious and intentional decolonization focus will have us replicating the same oppressive systems we live in. As unschoolers, if we are not actively trying to understand and dismantle colonialism, we are upholding it. I realize that unschooling is just one type of self-directed education, um, but it is something that allows us to think about how that is mapped out in our situation. Even in former colonies which have a white minority, internalized racism and colorism keep referencing white supremacy. So if that's the dominant culture, Self-directed learning isn't going to do enough. It's not going to go far enough. 
We respect our children when we talk to them about the inequality in the world. For white children, it means we're not leaving them to stagnate in colonial bystander trauma. That trauma manifests as paralyzing ancestral guilt. For the global majority, black, brown, and indigenous, it means we're allowing, encouraging them to liberate themselves from systems that tell them they must self-restrict because something is inherently wrong, something is missing. We do this by, we do all of this, by learning about what happens and allowing that information to, allowing that to inform our conversations with children and young people. How do we benefit from things being the way that they are? This is how we develop our critical thinking. This is how we model asking questions of the things we see, read, hear. It informs the materials we make available to young children, what suggestions we make. Now, nothing is neutral, and if something appears to be neutral to you, that, that generally says that it aligns with the dominant culture. And we model it by making it personal. Healing comes from knowing your family history in all its complexity. For some, it's going to be about working out how to move beyond ancestral guilt and interaction. For others, it's about reconnecting with a history that goes back further than colonialism to recover your ancestral birthright. And for all of us, it involves recovering community, learning to see ourselves as existing in an ecosystem of people rather than individual, individual in competition with individual. And that involves restoring relationships within our community, including with our children. That's hugely what a lot of us are trying to do by supporting children in their interests and decision-making. It also involves wealth distribution, redistribution work, and that's a personal journey everyone needs to go on. And it's also a systematic, a systemic thing that we need to talk to our governments about and rethinking who we look to for leadership. And it involves listening. Listening is a deeply decolonial practice. It upsets a colonial power structure that says that the person who shouts the loudest gets the thing. And that's what I'm feeling, um, and that what I'm feeling negates what everybody else in the room was feeling, is feeling. So just a little story on this, which might be familiar to some of you. I was at a home education group once and I was chatting with another person of color and we were talking about racist experiences that we had had in Cornwall, which um, if you're familiar with it, is a very white part of the UK and that's where we live. We were both getting really animated because it was energizing to have someone that we could share these experiences with and, uh, and not something that we commonly get to do. And there were two white women present who were both friends and one listened and occasionally contributed with empathy and understanding. It was clear that she's been doing a lot of learning around this and, uh, and also that she was learning a lot from the conversation. And, and so she, she, was, um, she was chiming in, in in ways that encouraged us to, to open up and, and continue. The other was quiet most of the time and she then interjected Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can hear that, not an, an, an invader trying to get in. <laughs> right, so the, the other, um, the other, 
she just she she just seemed to, to really be tense throughout and um, she interjected really forcefully that she didn't believe that what we were describing was actually racism that we had we, we were mistaken we got that wrong so we stopped talking almost instantly and didn't pick up the conversation until another time when we were alone just the two of us and she won't have realized that what she was doing was something that was so familiar to us so common and um and it was classic silencing that neither of us had any interest in justifying ourselves it was clear she wouldn't have understood she wasn't in that place yet in her learning but what struck me is that she believed that her right to be heard on a topic that didn't personally affect her was more important than, um, than the right of, of us as people with a lived experience to, to talk about it. And we were actually just talking about it with each other, but it was uncomfortable for her to be in the presence of that. And actually, it was a, an opportunity for her to learn from our lived experience. And she felt that she missed that opportunity. And she used her, her white privilege to position herself as an authority on something that we both knew that she didn't know about. And that happens, that, that happened in a social situation, but it happens all the time in workplaces, in schools, in governments, in whatever groups your kids go to, it happens everywhere. But when we listen to our children and we believe them, we support them to become radical listeners. And don't underestimate the difference that will make to the world. We support them to become the person who will listen empathically and be a part of that solution. So I hope that's starting to come together for you, um, thinking about how we can bring self-directed education as a methodology and beyond that as a way of living to decolonize both education and the wider culture. Um, as I said, I'm really aware that we're all coming at this from different backgrounds, different geographical locations. So I invite you to sit with some of this, rest with it, wrestle with it, and, um, and think about how you can apply it to your situation, whether you're a parent home educating or an educator in a mainstream setting or an alternative setting. And I'd be really interested in learning more about how this can be mapped across lots of different settings. I have recorded this. Um, <laughs> depending on whether it's not too chaotic, I may be putting it up on my Patreon if you would like to watch it again. Um, and you can, um, you can keep in touch or just chat with me on um, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm Adele Garrett-Klein, all of those places. Thank you for coming to my talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.